Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton. Today I'm joined by Doreen Lee, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Northeastern University, to talk about activist archives, youth culture and the political past in Indonesia, published this year, 2016, by Duke University Press. Doreen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You write in the book's introduction that you began to take an interest in youth politics and street politics in Indonesia in 2002. And by that time, of course, the New Order regime against which activists had fought for some three decades had already collapsed. What was it about youth activism in the years after the fall of Suharto that first attracted your attention, and how did you settle on it as a topic for research that culminated in this wonderful book? Yes. So I write about my process of entering the field a little bit in the introduction to the book, but I think perhaps I need to explain a little bit more about why a movement that began in 1998 was still attractive several years later. Um, And if anyone was paying attention to contentious politics in Southeast Asia, they would have known that demonstrations were still occurring basically every day or at least every few days in major cities across Indonesia and that several new movements um, whether it was uh, labor or environment or um, indigenous rights movements had also formed alongside um, the original democracy movement led by students in 1998. So I was quite fortunate to be able to pick up on a kind of thriving democratic culture and a very new democratic culture in Indonesia uh, in uh, 2002, which was about when I started going to the field and uh, conducting my research. Did you just stumble into Indonesia studies um, as a result of doing research as a graduate student, or is there something more to the story? Um, so the answer is yes and no, of course. I actually grew up in Indonesia, but I grew up as um, a member of a minority group. So my family is ethnically Chinese. Um, my mother is Indonesian, but my father is not. So I, I kind of had a very um, removed life as a child, a kind of expatriate life, uh, quite removed from politics. And of course, part of the fact was that um, there were many restrictions on um, Chinese participation in civic life in Indonesia. Uh, so I, I really did miss uh, the rumblings of popular dissent in the 90s because Indonesia still looked like an Asian tiger at that point, um, where the focus was on development, 
um, economic development, you know, foreign direct investment, and so on and so forth. So when 1998 happened and um, Suharto resigned, I was already in college in the U.S., and it came as a great shock to me. Uh, so it became a sort of personal quest to understand these social transformations and um, to try to understand how politicization could occur across classes, across time and space, um, across all these cultural differences in Indonesia. Um, and, and the yes part to, to the accidental stumbling was that I ended up at Cornell um, for graduate school, and I had entered the anthropology department, but I wasn't aware then that Cornell also boasted, you know, one of the oldest and most famous Southeast Asian studies programs in the U.S. So I was extremely lucky uh, to be able to study at a university where um, Ben Anderson and Jim Siegel and other important historians and anthropologists and development sociologists and linguists had um, worked for a decade. So, so that sort of shows you that in some ways it was planned and other ways I was just extremely fortunate to end up in the right place at the right time. In, in any case, I think clearly the right combination for the research that followed. Now, you, you concentrate the book on this category um, of youth politics, Pamuda politics, as you refer to it, and you track this category and its significance for political activism in Indonesia over successive generations from 1908 to 1998 and then thereafter. So perhaps before we proceed, I think it would be useful if you can set up that category for us, um, unpack it a bit. What do you mean when you refer to youth as a category for analysis of politics in Indonesia, past and present, and why does it matter anyway? Yes, so if we start with the present and we start with the actual political phenomenon of um, youth activism in 1998 and student activism, it would appear that all of these changes and all of these new political subjects were um, emerging uh, out of nowhere as if um, this was a kind of globalized identity politics, as it were, right, where the um, call for democracy mirrored other movements going on elsewhere that were based on um, an understanding of human rights and democracy. But what really interested me, and this is part of the kind of um, blessing of being at Cornell, was that when I started learning more about Indonesian history, it became very evident in the historiography itself that the category of youth had existed for well over um, you know, for a century since the colonial era to the post-colonial era, and that the role of youth in politics had been really secured by this nationalist historiography, which posited youth as agents of change in Indonesia. So there was, in fact, a kind of, um, let's say, categorical exception within Indonesian history itself that called attention to youth uh, over and over again, um, usually in times of crisis, in times of revolution, times of war, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it also, I think, the, the most recent iteration of youth politics in Indonesia uh, that I wrote about um, 
also matched up neatly with other aspects of youth culture. So in the book, for instance, I look at things like activist style. I look at how um, political culture enters into public culture in perhaps more fun and cheeky ways uh, rather than um, kind of overtly ideological ways. Uh, so I think there are several meanings of youth that I deploy in this book, and they intersect nicely. Um, and perhaps one common or comparative theme about youth that is is useful to think about um, just through this Indonesian case study uh, is that um, I think student activism itself has also emerged as an important um, political category to study. So it, it really is a sort of set of overlapping political definitions that can cohere in the figure of the Indonesian activist. We'll turn to style and perhaps uh, go into some of the spaces that your fieldwork occupies shortly. But before we do that, I'd like to pick up on this point and, and work with it a little bit more. Uh, you could have written um, a history of youth activism in Indonesia, say, up to 1998. And in, in some ways, that's part of your story. But really what you talk about is... Uh, to use your own terms, uh, the youth politics in the present as having a feeling of belonging of an historically charged present. So what is it about the relationship between the histories of youth activism in, in Indonesia and youth activism in the present day that's interesting and important for the story that you're telling? And, and not just important in a descriptive sense, but also it goes to... Uh, some of the explanations that you offer as to why it is that uh, youth political activism has persisted after, well after the demise of uh, dictatorship in Indonesia, whereas in other countries that we might look at, we find that it doesn't have that type of longevity. Um, yes, I think that's an excellent question that gets at various aspects of um, what makes this uh, case so interesting and perhaps in some ways unique and specific. Um, I think what you've pointed out in your question is that uh, the role of youth in politics has become really a cultural institution as well as an ideological feature that has um, really worked across several different types of regimes. And so one of the arguments that I I've proposed in this book and why I do a little bit of investigation into the 1980s, the 1990s, and the 1998 and beyond um, is to see what sustains this feeling of, um, let's say, of a moral claim that youth have on the nation that isn't merely tied to um, kind of a, a more reactive politics or a kind of impending sense of crises, but, but rather really culminates from a sense that um, youth politics is a legacy that has been um, imparted to present and future generations in Indonesia. Um, and, of course, my work draws heavily on previous work done by other scholars, um, prominent Indonesianists such as uh, Takashi Shiraishi or Benedict Anderson and uh, Bill Frederick, uh, Keith Fulcher as well, who, who's really looked at the importance of nationalism in Indonesian politics and how cultural styles of politics can be derived um, from 
from quite radical traditions and then brought into the masses or brought into the mainstreams. Um, and so what I was interested in doing in this book was simply to show that um, we can recognize how ideology implants itself in certain official narratives, but also in material culture, also in popular memory, also in collective memory. So tell us a bit more about that material culture, in particular going to the title of the book, um, The Activist Archives, on which you drew to tell this story. Can you um, paint a picture, as it were, of these archives, give us a sense of what sort of materials you worked with and where you went to obtain them and any distinctive characteristics of their materiality that you think um, would really uh, evoke the kinds of uh, modes of inquiry that you undertook when you were doing your research? Well, when I started doing field work, um, this was between 2003 to 2005, where I had an extended 18-month um, stay in Indonesia, um, it became very clear to me quite immediately that uh, political culture was immensely productive and productive of things. So it wasn't just ideas or organizations, but rather what glued people together, what conjoined ideas to action was the production of a kind of um, a very rich visual corpus, a, a set of paraphernalia that was immensely important and necessary to the staging of street politics, the staging of youth politics. Um, these included what people wore uh, for specific demonstrations, so they would make t-shirts specifically to address certain issues, um, that they would make banners that would be reused or preserved, um, that they would then make documentaries and um, sort of create photographic evidence and um, filmic evidence of protests and certain incidents of violence, for instance, um, as well as an enormous kind of paper corpus uh, of, of meeting reports, um, position papers, proposals, um, and such, you know, really a, a kind of um, broad range of materials that were really being downplayed, I think, in other studies and media reports about uh, what activism was like. And so I, when I try to theorize or think about activist culture, it became evident that um, it had to deal with the materiality of that culture and it had to deal with the um, vast array of objects that um, were produced in the wake of these demonstrations and these meetings. A lot of the stuff that you've just described is what um, formal institutions might refer to as ephemera and the kind of material that may not be collected by or housed in national libraries, for instance, or other uh, officially designated sites for, for archives. So in getting at this uh, term that you use in the title of the book, uh, Activist Archives, uh, can you well, maybe literally unpack it for us? For instance, you tell stories about 
um, people coming with plastic bags full of papers and so on. How, how did you go up, um, go about gathering up the materials and where did you have to go both in Indonesia and abroad to, to find them and to draw this material together in a way that um, it, it would be um, a, a corpus that you could use for the research that culminated in the book? Well, when I started the fieldwork initially, and I was attending a lot of demonstrations, and um, these were taking place in public space and kind of, you know, producing public space through the very presence of bodies and um, trucks and banners and so on and so forth, um, I was starting to theorize the street as an archive because even um, more than five years or even up to eight years after uh, 1998 in the fall of Suharto, there were still no official archives that belonged to student movements, or there was no centralized archives within Indonesia or abroad that collected um, the breadth of materials produced by many diverse types of groups across the ideological spectrum. Um, so it became clear to me that the kind of ephemera that was being generated at a very high volume was somehow disappearing. Uh, and yet, uh, Indonesians had a strong sense of, um, let's say, activism about these materials themselves. So they would try to conserve it, but as I write in the book, there were often all these stories of lost objects, um, confiscated items, or missing things. Uh, so in the course of my fieldwork, as any other anthropologist would do, uh, in addition to producing my own documentation through photographs and collecting um, items off the street and flyers and leaflets, uh, I, I actively sought out materials or people would offer materials from the past that they thought were important. And in so doing, I um, became a regular at certain photocopy shops and amassed a great deal of this information myself. Um, and then I was fortunate several years later to be made aware of uh, various Indonesian activist archives that were housed in the Netherlands at the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam um, that were direct donations from Indonesian activists themselves. And so I could consult those to provide a longer um, kind of time sequence for the type of activism I was studying, so all the way back to the 1980s. One of the parts of the story which really fascinated me and that I felt really made the title of the book so appropriate is this idea, if I've got it right, of the, the role of the activist as archivist. So the activist, you say, is a historical political subject who who feels historical and therefore documents things in that manner that there's a kind of uh, 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 documentary fetishism as it were at, at play here uh, is that something that you noticed early on in the research and that it led you to develop the work uh, in the way that it has or is it something that it came to you after you just accumulated so much of this stuff yourself? Uh, what was the relationship between your, your gathering of the material and your thinking through this aspect of the argument? Well, I think, um, I think your question picks up on the fact that my, my analysis mirrors what the activists themselves were thinking. And so in many ways, they were the best experts of their own practices. And I did indeed 
kind of figure out a couple of strong connections that the, the historicity of their political feeling was not only directly tied to the very strong continuing presence of the impact of 1998 in their lives, and even in young, younger activists who were indoctrinated by hearing stories about 1998 um, from their seniors, um, that this feeling of feeling historical was being actively cultivated and that people were um, very aware, quite self-aware of um, the importance of documentation. So they would keep producing things, keep making things, keep filming and making videos uh, to commemorate really the, the moment of their involvement in the democratic transition. Is all of this what you mean uh, after Derrida's archive fever as Pamuda fever? Is, is this what Pamuda fever consists of or is there something more to it that we haven't yet touched on in the conversation? I, I think so. I was, in fact, quite inspired by uh, Derrida's archive fever. And then there was, of course, a kind of large art catalog produced by Okri Envizor with the same title, um, which is about the drive to archive, the, the drive to consign, the drive to preserve, um, the, the feeling of being a steward or guardian over something, right, over which one claims ownership. And, and that was very present um, in amongst Indonesian activists. And what they were guarding was both the importance of the transition to democracy in 1998, but also this much longer uh, historical trajectory and lineage of Bermuda nationalism in, in Indonesia. And um, activists would refer again and again to um, the idea of the Bermuda uh, specifically in the revolution um, and in the kind of early nationalist era uh, as inspiration. So I, I think all that iconography was not lost upon them. It was very present. And um, my, my coinage of the term Bermuda fever, I think, uh, gets a little bit at, at why certain ideas became popular. And I use the word contagion to to express it because it was transmitted from one person to the other and it really was a kind of um i think in many cases for young people a peer experience where they were converted uh by friends or by sharing similar experiences that they somehow found themselves and other people on the street through this kind of um, active street politics is the reference to contagion makes me wonder about whether or not that's a reason that you, you sound a note of caution about the use of this term, or on the one hand, adopting it, um, that there's something about it which suggests a certain irrationality, perhaps, which is also not the message that you're delivering through this text? Yeah, I, I note that because I think there is, of course, in the historiography of Bermuda nationalism, a, a high degree of romanticism. And this is something Bill Frederick has written about as well in his work on Bermuda style, that there is a type of nostalgia and romanticism that tends to obscure um, the politics of the Bermuda themselves. And so I, I sound a note of caution because I can see how people could take the term or, or misconstrue um, 
the presence of their irrational within mass politics. Um, but rather, I want to say um, the feverish part is really about the the affective sensation of being in, politicized, that there's an intensification of um, the feelings of solidarity, of involvement, of concern for the nation. So, so really, I'm, I'm trying to gesture towards um, an altered state of consciousness, right? So to link uh, politicization with, um, with consciousness raising and um, to take it in a more political direction rather than to um, kind of promote a kind of physiological understanding of crowd politics. Well, with crowd politics, let's move from the archive to the streets or perhaps uh, to the street as archive and to the demo, at, which you yes. spent a lot of time at. Uh, can you talk us through a demonstration? Just give us a sense of the emotions and sounds, the participants, the techniques for managing bodies and the life cycle of a demo as you describe it in the book. Yes. Um, so here I'm kind of drawing on Marcel Moses, the techniques of the body, but also um, ideas about expertise and discipline and management, because I, I think it's important to understand how much technical and logistical um, discipline is required to put together a demonstration and how the Indonesian actors became extremely good at it. They became adept through experience. They learned from each other. They adapted their techniques over time so that demonstrations of 1998, uh, which inspired later demonstrations, did not look the same um, and, and certainly were not as uh, um, volatile as, as the ones in 1998. So um, demonstrations require a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings beforehand between various groups um, to cement an alliance, but to also commit facts and figures. So in planning meetings, uh, people map out the timeline of the organization uh, as well as um, they, they assign important roles to various activists. Uh, so leadership roles, management roles, transportation roles, um, logistical roles, so on and so forth, communications, uh, media relations, um, legal aid. These are all uh, aspects of the demonstration that are planned beforehand. Um, and in these planning meetings, people will commit you know, 30 activists or 50 demonstrators and so on and so forth. Um, and at the actual day of the demo, um, the, the choice of the demo site is also quite important. People try to find a high visibility area uh, which is considered safe and good and secure for demonstrations with um, good passageways, um, uh, something resembling public space. So people will gather in, some, in a park or a parking lot um, and then move towards their designated location um, they might conduct a march towards the destination and then hold a rally uh, where people will hold speeches and there will be a kind of elaborate uh, sound system with rented um, speakers and uh, handheld um, um, mics and so on and so forth. And sometimes activist groups will contribute music or performance art um, and other rather festive elements to the demonstration itself. 
um, at times there might be some kind of encounter with uh, security forces at the demo site. Um, these may or may not turn violent. Um, really, often it does not. Um, and at about 4 or 5 o'clock, there is a, a turn toward a, a kind of ritualized ending, and then people go home. Uh, and the, the passage home is also quite well organized. Um, there are often uh, public um, kind of minibuses that are rented for the occasion to ferry people back to their destinations. Um, there might be an evaluation uh, meeting that is carried out afterwards, but often people gather, eat, drink, and, and talk um, for hours after a demonstration. So it really is a, a huge time commitment. What about the, the visual and material culture, which you alluded to uh, earlier on? You, you say that there's a carefully cultivated style that passes through youth politics and through demos into the public domain. Please tell us a bit more about the features of that style and perhaps uh, also why, why was it that it emerged so forcefully from the late 1990s onwards? Well, the uniform that I talk about in the book um, is perhaps one of the most accessible uniforms possible. It's a political T-shirt and jeans, um, maybe some kind of sneakers, some kind of sandals, sunglasses, a scarf, a hat, but the t-shirt and jeans is the basic uniform of the activists that they will wear everywhere they go. And um, sometimes groups will produce uh, special t-shirts, special edition t-shirts for certain demonstrations so that people can wear them en masse and appear as a corporate group when they are on the site. So when I was conducting my research in 2004, 2005, this kind of um, style was very well developed, and each group that attended the demo site um, appeared quite uniform. They would also have matching banners and flags to announce their presence. Um, there was uh, a very there was a great deal of attention paid to the visuality of the demonstration itself, so that it could have more impact beyond the number of bodies on the site. And um, especially good was bright colors and, and sort of very large slogans and banners uh, that would look good on camera. So there was also that attention to to media detail um, and effects that, that was, um, I think, purposely cultivated in the student movement and in the activist movement more, more broadly. With the commercialization of public space, what are the implications for the use of images like the iconic Che Guevara uh, T-shirt image? Uh, is it the case that they still retain their political contents or are they somehow assimilated into other parts of public life and consequently the meaning that your youth activists might attach to them is dissipated? Well, I think one could read that in a variety of ways. The, the popularization of this type of style of um, wearing political T-shirts or satirical T-shirts or kind of, um, you know, T-shirts of con commentary in, on contemporary issues um, was pretty widespread, at least across Java. Um, and if activist groups weren't making them, uh, there were lots of vendors selling them. So it 
really was a style that became assimilated and became more mainstream. Um, and I, I don't think that was a bad thing. I don't think it diluted youth politics, but rather it allowed people to identify with youth politics um, in a very accessible way. Uh, so if you were out in public space or you were out in the markets um, and you could see people wearing certain kinds of T-shirts that wouldn't have been banned even a decade before, um, you could you could sort of gauge that political conversation might be possible with such a person. Uh, so so I think this is one of the ways that youth political culture entered into public culture and and made certain subversive symbols. Um, more acceptable, more palatable in Indonesia post-Suharto. Yeah, in fact, I'm just looking at a point that you make on page 97 of the text where you say that the visual dominance of the mediatized activist image in the public sphere and its transposition onto an older Pemuda image ensured that the student body could never be truly stripped naked of its politicized identity. So... Um, is is that the point that you're making there? That that somehow it becomes, uh, in some ways, integral to that larger political identity, and yet is also still distinctive. It still stands apart from it in some way. Yes, I, I think so. Um, the the figure of the student activist, you know, the, the emergence of this social type that has since become quite normalized and naturalized. And, Indonesian political life, um, I think the visual characteristics of the activists look uh, really played a part in this um, and and worked as a kind of wink, if, if you like, um, that it was a way of being political for many people about um, being extremely, um, let's say, outwardly or verbally um, declaratively political, but it already stood for something if you were daring enough to wear a political t-shirt and, and to look like a student activist. So if there is this um, kind of acceptability and uh, mediation of messages into the public space that didn't exist previously, then why do you end up that chapter on, uh, it's the chapter on style, in fact it is, uh, saying that, um, nevertheless, Indonesians are impatient for the student movement to please leave already. It sounds as if, on the one hand, there's uh, a certain amount of enfolding in the public space and acceptability that comes with that, but still um, a, a resentment of some sort about the continued occupation of public space uh, by your youth activists. Right. I think there is... Um attention there. And, and um, this means that we have to take a longitudinal view at democratization and political transformations because there are always counter movements at work. And there are always, I think, um, globally, a move towards you know, uh, a more sophisticated expression of right-wing politics. And that's certainly happening in Indonesia. Um, and so there is a sense that reformasi is out of date or out of style, and so is student activism. Um, so there is the expectation both for youth to be always at the forefront and always daring and breaking the rules, but there is also now, I think, the expectation that youth 
um, must be more mature or grow up and kind of must return to a normalized um, uh, setting of social development. Uh, So there is indeed that that tension at present where what was welcome before um, has outstayed its welcome. Well, maybe we'll return to that debate shortly near the end of the discussion. But before we get there, I'd like to move from the streets to other sites that you cover in the book, in the the chapter with the title of Home. Uh, As you point out, of course, not everything happened in the streets. And you say that really to find out where, quote, activism was not only surviving but thriving, unquote, you had to go into other domains. Now, People may think that those other domains would be, well, the university campus, um, other public places, but not the streets themselves. But in fact, you go to sites that I'm probably going to pronounce incorrectly, but nevertheless, the coast, secret, the base camp, and perhaps quintessentially the the POSCO. Um, I, I have a string of questions about these places, but briefly, well, what were they? Where were they? Who was in them? Uh, how did you get to them? And and how do you distinguish them as activist sites as against just any other place in the urban area of Jakarta? Yes. So I was quite invested in thinking about um, how activist life reproduced itself and um, if the demo was work, um, then where were the spaces of play and where was the places of rest? And what did people do after the demonstration? Um, and it turned out that activists still spent quite a lot of time together before and after the demo and that there was a, a, a great deal of continuity between work and play. Um, and so activist sociality really took place um, in the kinds of spaces that I described. So, for instance, in, in the cost, which would be student lodgings or rented rooms, um, usually off campus uh, for men and women, uh, the secretariat, which would have been a kind of office, or also a slightly larger rented room or a small house that people used as their headquarters, and base camp, which um, kind of borrows the military term, but um, also served as organizational headquarters where activists would go and spend a lot of their time um, resting, eating, watching TV together, having late night discussions or inviting um, guest speakers or foreign guests and journalists and so on and so forth. And lastly, the POSCO, which um, is perhaps the most ephemeral of all of these sites, uh, a kind of emergency structure that would be assembled to address specific emergencies um, where the people could go and make contact with activists and um, bring their concerns or where people could drop off donations and come and volunteer their time and services. Um, So it really um, kind of emerged through these uh, spatial structures that activist life um, went far and beyond the campus and the streets. Uh, you you mentioned this uh, continuity of work and play, and I'd like to dwell on that a moment longer before we continue with the time remaining to the other contents of the book, because 
I think one of the really important things about this chapter is the emphasis that you place on how the private and the public are enfolded together, how the boundaries of sociality and intimacy, as you put it, are blurred. Could you say something a little bit more about why it was important for you to emphasize um, that aspect of what you were observing? Yes, um, and this is really to address, I think, the the, the class question in, in this research, um, because most university students were privileged, were middle class, or um, even if they were from rural areas, had somehow acquired either enough social or economic capital to, to be in a city and to be a university student. So the great mystery, I think, of the 1990s was, was how activists became politicized and why it would be that middle class um, youth would turn away from um, a kind of uh, what activists called a decadent lifestyle, a kind of westernized, consumptive lifestyle toward radical politics and really leftist politics. Uh, and so it was important to to show that this work of politicization, of um, of living an alternative life could take place in these shared activist spaces, um, such as rented homes and offices, off-site, as it were. In the opening of the book, you describe all of the events that you set out as occurring in the shadow of, of multiple types of violence, physical mm-hmm. uh, physical, uh, structural and epistemological three. And a chapter of the book is dedicated to this topic and you weave a discussion of these types into the chapter. But here you really bifurcate the, the conversation between violence and counter-violence in student politics. So one question you raise yourself that I'd like you to address again in our conversation is the question of why student counter-violence is so troubling to think about. And relatedly, a question that I have is, uh, why do you make a move in your book against the literature on student counterviolence as um, an apolitical form of violence? Yeah, I think this chapter was perhaps the hardest for me to write. Um, Even at the dissertation stage, it, it went through many, many iterations and many, many explanations because I was trying my hardest to... Um, deconstruct a naturalizing narrative about student violence and also a culturalist explanation for student violence. Um, And so I was sort of struggling against various narratives and on various fronts, one of which I mentioned in the book um, is what Indonesians um, call horizontal violence, right, which is the predominant explanation for outbreaks of violence um, at the grassroots level. Um, So it's seen as taking place between equal parties, right? So there is no kind of explanation of um, inequality. Um, Horizontal violence also is a way to depoliticize acts of violence because it usually tends to draw on essentializing explanations for why violence takes place. So that was certainly something I tried to avoid. Um, And I also wanted to 
avoid once again linking youth with violence because I think that occurs time and again um, to criminalize and demonize youth politics and to um, point to the irrationality of youth politics. Whereas I think in in the student movement, um, certainly in 1998 and after, um, Student counterviolence always had a kind of meaning and always had a kind of message, whether it was about resistance to the state or a, a sense of justice. Um, it was never devoid of meaning. So I want to also step away again from the explanation of spontaneous violence breaking out um, during the demo or um, in public, um, which was a very common way for the state to discredit student politics. I, I think we need to be clear about what it is we're, we're talking about here. Can you be um, more explicit about what form the violence, state violence took and um, I'll give a little bit more information about the forms that student counter violence took as well? Yes. So, the kinds of state violence that students experienced were, were quite extreme. Um, they ranged from kidnappings uh, in 1997 uh, through early 98, um, torture, um, mass arrests or arbitrary detentions, um, uh, trials for um, insulting the head of state, uh, so there was a range of different violent tactics that the state um, kind of deployed against student activists. And also there were often um, kind of acts of violence at the demonstrations themselves. So um, either uh, members of the army or riot police would, would beat students or would um, fire tear gas and so on and so forth. Um, so that's the kind of range of state violence I'm talking about where there were actual student deaths. Um, student counterviolence was more highly symbolic. So students um, in 1998 and 1999 uh, would try to fight back by throwing rocks, throwing stones, and um, throwing Molotov cocktails. Uh, they would also provoke uh, the security forces that they faced at demonstrations. They would sort of push back and use physical force. They would use their flags and their banners as um, uh, weapons to, to hold their ground and to push back against the security forces. Um, and in some of the more extreme cases of uh, what I call counterviolence uh, by students um, as a kind of reaction to what they considered to be state violence, um, students also conducted sweepings where they would surround um, cars that belonged to um, the police, for instance, uh, and and try to overturn the cars or or set them on fire um, without people in them. Uh, they would try. They would sweep individual members of the army or police that they found on streets or on public buses and, and try to humiliate them or bully them. Um, so you can see that they're they're not proportionate responses, as it were, uh, but they were very highly symbolic acts um, that people, I think the public felt quite ambivalent about when they witnessed it. And I should add that you do have uh, a number of very compelling 
accounts in the book that speak to these different types of uh, violence. In particular, the one that stayed with me was the uh, testimony of uh, Iblis, the torture survivor. So I commend uh, that uh, part of the book to listeners uh, interested in this aspect of the work that you did. Before we move to, to conclude in a few minutes on this topic of violence, could you say a little bit more about um, what are the epistemological features of the violence? How did violence function epistemologically in this setting? Well, one of the important ways um, in which violence was present and it, it played a part epistemologically in student narratives was that I think it created a strong sense of solidarity amongst victims of state violence, especially across generations. And so it was it was very important for the category of victimhood to arise and for people to articulate um, the abuses they had either suffered or uh, members of their family had suffered and friends of theirs had suffered as human rights abuses and as state abuses of power. Um, so that was one of the very important features of um, how violence uh, created community amongst activists. Uh, you described the book as ending with a calculated guess at the pending historical outcome of Indonesia's protracted student movement. And this calculated guesswork, as, as you put it, I think there's more to it than that, but in any case, uh, is, is situated in a discussion of how some youth leaders come to claim new roles after 1998 as toko, uh, a term that I'd invite you to say a little bit about, uh, conditions of proliferating claims to ownership in some way or another of the legacy of 98, and these claims are, are supplemented and enlarged by the political economy of elections in Indonesia uh, in 2004 and again in, in 2014. But in some ways, the, the story I got for those two elections is slightly different and I'd be interested to hear you speak about it because it seemed as if in 2004 what you were documenting were efforts by some of the um, Togo and others to institutionalize and engage in a new type of political action with the emergence of party politics and that those efforts fail and you say that uh, post-reformasi activism continues to thrive as in the past really in moments of emergency. But in 2014, the impression you create in closing the book is really that uh, the proximity of uh, activist youths to civil society groups and the media, even if it hasn't transformed them themselves into politicians or propelled their organizations uh, into the forefront of political action in the new era, nevertheless is proving to be significant for the politics of Indonesia in the current day, uh, witness what happened uh, with Prabowo in the 2014 election. So would you care to comment on that? Have I got it right or is there something else going on here that uh, you think needs to be said? No, I, I think um, your reading is quite spot on in that um, the political establishment have been learning um, from the student movement for quite some time, and this was evident even in 2004, hence the institutionalization and incorporation of former activists into um, formal politics and into political parties. Um, and even the, the 
styles and the visual spectacles and the kind of social contracts that um, current politicians seem to offer in their attempts at populism, I think very closely uh, emerge from reformasi culture and from um, activist culture. And so there is a way in which some of these techniques um, have gone mainstream. Um, and yet uh, there is a, a sort of ambivalent outcome at the end of the book, which which isn't quite about political disappointment. It isn't that I think student activists failed uh, or that that's the right question to ask, but rather that um, there there's something survives Generation 98, whether it's the activists themselves and their youth spirit um, or the expertise that they've accumulated over a decade and a half of political work, right, or almost two decades of political work um, that are still quite effective and um, continue to make impact in Indonesian political life. Um, so, so that would be my read for the, um, sort of, let's say, ephemeral presence of um, some of these figures from 98 in present day politics. That it may not be their full-time work, and yet they're still very much drawn to the world of politics and still very much... Um, intervene and uh, participate and communicate um, at a very heightened level. Um, many of the activists that I knew um, have gone on to uh, get master's degrees, have become professionals, um, have become fluent in English or other languages, and, and really are um, poised to be the best representatives of um, important and progressive issues in Indonesia today. And is your current research keeping you in this space or have you moved in another direction with the publication of this book? I My current work is somewhat related in that it's still about the urban and still about public spaces, uh, but I'm currently working on a project that more closely looks at infrastructural changes in Indonesia and also um, the kind of grassroots experience of um, economic change and financial inclusion. So I've become quite interested in um, urban informality in cities like Jakarta and how um, urban citizenship is becoming redefined in this era of um, kind of ramped up development and speculative investment. And uh, is there a new monograph planned uh, sometime in the next uh, few years? I know it might be a little bit premature to ask, given that this book has just come out. But nevertheless, um, yeah. I'm sure well, listeners would be keen to know. I've um, been writing a little bit about these new topics. So there are articles out um, here and there. I have an article on traffic in um, Iger in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research out last year. That's really my new subject, and I've been presenting this work at conferences and talks. Um, but I should say a new book is probably a few years out from now. <laughs> I definitely need to do a lot more field work and research. Well, this one uh, was very well worth waiting for, and I think um, I, I would commend it, uh, congratulate you, and commend it not only as a powerful study of youth politics in Indonesia, but also as an exemplary study for scholars keen to do 
similar ethnographic work on youth politics elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Um, so thank you again, uh, Doreen Lee, for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone for listening to Doreen talk about activist archives, a youth culture and the political past in Indonesia on new books in Southeast Asian studies. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and that you'll join me, Nick Cheesman, for another conversation with an author. And if you do have the time, please also check out the over 100 other new books network channels that are all freely available online. Hey, thank God she get the tin to vote. Monkey!